<sighs> the comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car selling command center, thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this. Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes. There really is no place like home. And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. This is the Tom Hartman Program. This is the Tom Hartman Program, and I am Jeff Smith. Well, folks, what did we learn? How do we better understand the country? How do we better understand the presidency? How do we better understand who ought to be the president? Now, there was a debate last night. Ten people who want to be president of the United States had some chance to offer their vision for the country and disagree with some other people who are offering their vision for the country. Tonight, there'll be another ten. What did we learn? What do we wish we would have learned? Tom will be back tomorrow. He is wrapping up the Hartman Cruise chance to be with loyal friends and listeners of the program. And thank you so much for being listeners of the program. It has been a joy and an honor to be with you. And we've got a big day today because very often it is the analysis of the debate that shapes the discussion about the presidency more than the debate itself. And we have a chance to be part of that discussion. I'm going to give you the answer of who won the debate. <laughs> I found the answer. I know people, I wonder, people debating, wondering who won. I found it. I found the answer. Well, sort of. Because I'm a nerd, I made a spreadsheet. I found all the, it was eight or nine journalism places, news outlets, perhaps we'll call them that purported to identify the winners and losers. Not my favorite thing to do about a debate. That's why I like to ask the question, what did we learn? What do we wish we would have learned? What do we still need to learn? But a popular pundit question is who won and who lost? And so I made a spreadsheet. On the x-axis, I put the news outlet. On the y-axis, I put the candidate. In the cell created by the intersection of that x and y-axis, I put whether they're winner or loser, a little bit of both or neither. And it told a story. It told a story of who at least the pundits thought won and who the pundits thought lost. I'll offer that, but want to hear what you think. What do we still need to figure out to understand who would be the best candidate for president and who would be the best president? As I've said before, as I'll say as many times as I've given a chance, that's how I'm trying to evaluate this choice. Not just some triangulation pick of who I think other people might like, but who do I think would be the best president? What do we need to understand to evaluate that question? What did we learn? What do we still need to learn? And let me start, as folks are calling in, with this general question. 
And that is, in fact, how do we frame the question? How the question is framed is so deeply important. That is my biggest, personally, takeaway from that experience last night. CNN has been relatively panned for that experience. On my winners and losers spreadsheet, CNN was named a loser three times. The moderators, Washington Post said nice things about the moderators, but then said that the format was a loser. The idea of, well, maybe we narrow the range of topics, get deeper on those topics. If they narrow the range of topics, it's merely because they barely covered foreign policy. But my structural takeaway about that format, why I would say my quibble, my critique of the CNN format and the CNN performance and Jake Tapper's performance was an acknowledgement that we need to understand how we frame the question matters so much. Imagine two different questions. Are you in line with how most people do things and understand things? Are you very different than that? Are you a regular person or are you a weirdo extremist? The temptation for people who want to win an election is, well, I'm a regular person. I'm in line with how most people do things and how most people understand things. But imagine a different question. Imagine a question that asks, do we need structural change in our economy and our democracy? Anyone paying attention to the climate? Anyone paying attention to wealth gaps, anyone paying attention to our systems of governance would say, yeah, we need structural change. Well, guess what? Structural change is different than hugging the yellow stripe down the middle of the road, particularly if that road is defined not by where the viewpoints of people are, but where the power structure is. A majority of Americans know that we need fundamental transformation of our economy and our democracy, but also every human organism fears change. As the Harvard Business Journal explained, to lead change, the constituency needs to have more pain from the status quo than from the change itself. Even though it might feel nice, I know that it would feel nice to be in the water. Jumping into the water can feel cold. And you might not jump in unless it's really hot or unless you get some encouragement. So what encouragement is the media apparatus offering for us to jump in the cold water of what most people understand, including most members of the news media, that we do need some fundamental change in our economy and our democracy if we're going to address climate change, wealth gaps, and in fact, restore our democracy. That is not merely a tinker around the edges thing. So my most fundamental critique of the discussion last night was the way it was framed, the way The Intercept put it, and it's just The Intercept, the way The Intercept put it was that Warren and Sanders dominate debate set up to ambush them. Not an accident that Sanders and uh, Warren were put on the same debate stage. The idea that they'd fight it out among the liberals, among the progressives, you pick your word. But then also put the most the four most conservative candidates running for president among Democrats. Bullock, Delaney, uh, Hickenlooper, and I'm missing one, and Tim Ryan. On the same stage, who all in their opening speeches whacked Warren and Sanders. 
and setting up a debate of, oh, guess what? The world should be seen in a, through a binary lens. There are really just two things that go on in the world. There's two things. One is looks like your left arm because you have a left arm, hopefully, and good luck that you do. And you have a right arm. And so it's, it's one of those arms because that's how we can understand the world. Two hemispheres of the brain. Therefore, the world must be understood in a binary way. And so I'll have the, the Tim Ryans, and I'll have the Warren and the Sanders, and then there'll be people in the middle. And that superstructure of understanding politics will become a self-fulfilling prophecy. Framing the question of, are you an extremist? Are you too extreme to beat Trump? Are you, are you too conservative to win a Democratic primary? Rather than asking merely, how are we going to get out of this mess? How are we going to fundamentally transform our systems? Carol from South Carolina. How you doing, Carol? Yeah. Hey, Jefferson. I love it when you sit in for Tom. I'm watching on Free Speech TV. I want to start out by saying I think it's really elitist that CNN, which is a paid cable outlet, mm. is hosting a debate. So many people don't have access to it, including me. I didn't see it last night. I'm hearing progressives, Amy Goodman this morning and others, and yourself now, talking about the debate. So thanks for filling in the gaps in my life here. I'm wondering if they talked about climate change, the existential threat that we all face. Were any questions asked of them by the CNN moderators? It it was discussed. But this, but Carol, this is this is my critique, because the hardest thing to do, the hardest thing to do for an elected official, the hardest thing to do for a candidate for elected office is say, hey, I really want to disrupt the power structure. (laughs) You know, the people who run things, I don't want to be with them. I want to be with something different than that because they're kind of messing stuff up. That is the hardest thing to do. It's not as hard to whack a particular elected official, right? That's standard operating procedure. But the overall power, I want to change how you live your life. I want to change how the economy works. That's a really hard thing to do. And to me, it is a if we understand that certain things are necessary and by now, every single moderator on every single presidential panel, including Hugh frickin Hewitt, understands that we need some fundamental change, at least so we don't melt the planet. And therefore, it seems to me incumbent upon them to say, all right, climate change is real. It's going to be hard. So just start there and actually say it. How are we going to get there? And how do you manage doing that? What does change look like for you? And asking a question like that, and in fact, encouraging courage a little bit, allowing for courage, rather than saying, asking questions like, well, are you too extreme to win in the general election? Do you think the politics of this will work? Do you think people will back you if you, in fact, engage in structural change? So climate change came up. It wasn't treated with as much gravity as any climate activist would have hoped, but it was dealt with at least a little bit. Before we have to run, I didn't have a chance to hear Amy Goodman this morning. What was her take on the debate? Well, the focus was on, primarily was on Bernie and Liz, and that they both were very supportive and cordial of each other. Yeah, that was interesting, in fact. And I know the winners and losers thing is a somewhat immature thing to do for the discussion today a little bit. But that was, in fact, one of the uh, one of the losers that identified, I think it actually might have been by the Washington Post, was the hope for a Bernie versus Warren fight. And in fact, that was not where the fight was. The fight was between them and the four conservative Democrats on the panel. But Carol, thank you so much for the call. This is the Tom Hartman Show. I'm Jefferson Smith, and we'll be back in just a moment. 
Hey, people are always asking me, Tom, is the X chair really as comfortable as you say it is? And my answer is always yes. In fact, I probably don't do an adequate job describing just how great this chair feels. So take my advice, get one to feel it for yourself. Thanks to X-Chair's 30-day, no questions asked, guarantee of complete satisfaction, you have no risk. So if you're wondering if what I say is true, try it for yourself. Once you feel the X-Chair's patented dynamic variable lumbar support, or DVL, you'll understand exactly why I love my X-Chair so much. Take advantage of X-Chair's new financing option and increase your productivity with the right model for you, the X-Basic, the X-1, through the X-4. X-Chair can fit your body and your budget. X-Chair is on sale now for $100 off. Just go to xchairtom.com now. That's xchairtom.com or call 1-844-4X-Chair. Go to xchairtom.com now and use the code XWHEELS and you'll receive a free set of the new X-Wheels with your chair. xchairtom.com. As we more and more can understand the importance of the presidency, not only for what the president does, but for the people that they tag that will be making decisions potentially for a generation or more. What can we learn looking back at Justice Stevens and the legacy of a Supreme Court justice? To join us to at least address that question a little bit, is Matt Ford from the New Republic. Matt Ford, who also wrote the article for the New Republic when John Paul Stevens eviscerated Antonin Scalia. Matt, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. If you were going to pick a takeaway, you don't have to be limited to just one, but if you were going to have a takeaway from Justice Stevens' career that would help us better understand our country or just to appreciate his life, what would be that takeaway? I think you can see Justice Stevens is almost like a through line of 20th century American history. This was a man who witnessed Babe Ruth call his shot at Wrigley Field. He joined the Navy on December 6, 1941, the day before Pearl Harbor. He served in the cryptanalysis unit that hunted down Admiral Yamamoto's plane. And he returned, GI Bill, got a legal education, became a lawyer and then a judge and then a Supreme Court justice, where he ruled on some of the most important cases the last 30 years. There's a lot more to American history than just him, of course, but you can really trace this country's path through how he lived his life. It's interesting. I, I, in some respects, couldn't agree more, but I see it, or at least I see a different piece of that elephant, or I'll amplify what you said in this way. One of the most interesting quotes that he said, and I won't quote it accurately, I'll paraphrase, when he was described as being a liberal justice, said, you know, when I was appointed, I was viewed as a moderate. He was appointed by a Republican. He said, I didn't change my views. The political landscape changed. We became much more uh, right-wing as a country. And so seeing him as a through line, not only for events in American history, but also for the shifting political tide in our country in an anti, sort of anti-democracy, pro-property way, is what immediately I thought of when you said a through line. You wrote this article about when he, you feel free to push back on that or add to that. What surprised you when looking back, when you did some research on him or when you were looking back to write your article? To start with, I totally agree with your point on his place on the court's ideological spectrum. You mentioned at the start that this is one of the most important decisions that a presidential candidate can make. 
And we've seen, uh, especially within the last 40 years, how those individual decisions can aggregate with something far greater. From 1968, when Lyndon B. Johnson appointed Thurgood Marshall to the Supreme Court, to 1993, when Ruth Bader Ginsburg was named to the Supreme Court, Democrats didn't name a single Supreme Court justice. As a result, we saw the court, through 11 justices, shift steadily to the right. And so, Stephen's assessment is fairly accurate. And the big takeaway there is not only how far the country has shifted to the right, especially the court, which is in some ways an outpaced the country in that rightward shift, but also how people can push back on that, how Democrats can think about how they will leave their lasting legacy when it comes to the nation's highest court. Why do you think that, in at least relative terms, Democratic voters have seemed to, well, not seemed to, have prioritized, uh, evidenced in many ways, uh, selection of Supreme Court justices lower than Republican voters. Republican voters have been more vote motivated than Democratic voters on the issue of Supreme Court appointments. I think a key factor, um, there are multiple factors, I'll, I'll just start by saying, but I think one that really stands out is the sense of urgency. For the last 20 years especially, we've had two justices who served as sort of moderate checks on the court's conservative wing. You've had first Sandra Day O'Connor and then Justice Kennedy, who both were willing to let the court go rightward in certain directions on federalism, on the Commerce Clause, on criminal right, and on criminal justice. But they also preserved sort of the, the American social status quo. They allowed limits to affirmative action, but did not get rid of it entirely. They allowed limits to abortion rights, but did not get rid of Roe v. Wade. And in some cases, especially as we saw with, with Justice Kennedy, we saw advances in the area of gay rights. And so that sort of masked the underlying tectonic shift and the level of intensity on the right, I don't think a lot of liberals really woke up to that as an active part of their, their political calculations until the Merrick Garland standoff and then Neil Gorsuch's point and then finally, of course, the, the Brett Kavanaugh situation. Uh, Matt, so it's, it strikes me as so insightful that you had, and in fact, it had a couple sides of that coin, the, the very dynamic, the dynamic of Republican presidents appointing justices, some of whom ended up being Justice Souter and Justice Stevens, but appointments like that were essentially appointed by Republicans, but ended up uh, being, you know, certainly to the left of, um, uh, to the left of Senator Day O'Connor, who had been a Republican activist, Rehnquist had been a Republican activist prior to them becoming justices. But yeah, maybe there's a frog in a beaker dynamic that people aren't noticing it. And at the same time, that is inspiring the right wing to invest in the Federalist Society to make sure there aren't any more Stevens or suitors. Do you think there will again be a Republican president who nominates a justice who, in fact, reads the Constitution, reads precedent, tries to follow it as distinct from someone who is vetted to be an activist for the right wing? I don't think we're likely to see another Stevens or even uh, definitely not another suitor to come from a Republican president anytime soon. The lesson from the last 20 years and last 30 years, even blessing from Souter especially, was building up structures and networks to avoid that from happening again. Yeah. You've had a 40-year project to remake the courts in, in the conservative image, and when it comes to Supreme Court nominations especially, that's a zero-sum game. That's one reason why they fought tooth and nail to place Brett Kavanaugh on the court. Uh, that's one reason why they go, go so thoroughly through these nominees' backgrounds on their side. That's one reason why you know, Trump was forced to hand over a list of his Supreme Court nominees before the conservative movement would really throw their weight behind him. They know that that is one of the key vectors of American power. 
and they have a much better grasp of that, much more built-up expectation of controlling that in their voters and the Democrats do with their own base. So I, I think the stuff that you're covering is among the most important stuff that's happening in American democracy. And we're about to run out of time, but let me ask sort of a weird question. I used to think about movie sequels. And why'd they make a sequel to that? The sequel wasn't as good as the first one. I realized, oh, they had to make a sequel because they knew that if they did, it'd make $100 million. And if your job is to make money making movies and you know you can do it and make $100 million, it is you are required to do it. I think about Mitch McConnell. He could not uh, approve, he could not confirm Merrick Garland, the, the modus operandi, the raison d'etre, the essential purpose of the Republican apparatus. Uh, and my citation is not only you, my citation is also uh, McLean's Democracy in Chains, was to build a Lochner era. And heck, George Will, George Will's new book says it again, to build a Lochner era-like right-wing Supreme Court that could block popularly elected stuff. Here's my quick question. We got like 10 seconds. Do you think if a Democrat is elected president that a Mitch McConnell Senate would allow their Supreme Court nominee to be confirmed? I can give you a two-second answer. No. I don't think so either. And I think we've got to be prepared for that and understand the implications of a potentially eight-member Supreme Court or what we do about that. This is Tom's show. Thank you so much, Mr. Ford. Thank you. This is the Tom Hartman Program. That's a big deal. Understand that we might have a U.S. Senate that would not confirm, even given four or infinite years. Go ahead, Pastor John. You've been waiting patiently. Yes, we need to have a campaign. Ask them, what's your campaign to bring the white working class and black working class together? Two, will you have hearings to have uh, all the Secretary of State throughout the country come and testify how they're going to protect our elections? And three, in 18, March 1st, 1875, they passed a civil rights bill that said treat all people equally. In 1883, the Supreme Court said it was unconstitutional based upon the Commerce Clause. It makes a difference who you vote for for president in the Supreme Court. How'd I do? <laughs> Pastor John? You sound like a man of God who has been (laughs) ordained with the ability to communicate clearly and swiftly about matters of great important wisdom. (laughs) I want to take a call from a Republican. This is Corey in Las Vegas. Hey, Corey. You were asking why it seems like the Republicans are so much more focused on the court. And I personally think that the biggest reason I know what it is for me is the Bork. The whole thing that went down with Bork in the 80s and... I mean, I know everybody wants to get upset about Merrick Garland. Yes, I know that McConnell didn't even let come up for a vote. But the thrashing that Bork took, I think, really irritated a lot of us to the point where if we want to feel like our rights are protected on guns, if we feel like abortion is that important of an issue, we feel like that can't be done through Congress as easily as it can be done with a 5-4 decision. Yeah, that part is absolutely true and I absolutely agree with it. Let me ask on the Bork thing. I mean, the Republican president still got to, Ronald Reagan still got to appoint a Republican, very conservative Supreme Court justice, yeah? He did, but not Bork. And the and, and, and that's, and do, that's do you the think, point. Do you, do you think, and as a Republican, do you think it was appropriate for uh, Mitch McConnell not to allow for a hearing and a vote on Merrick Garland? I understand his terminology of in the last year of a two-term president. I can understand his thing. I personally think it should have come up for a vote. Yeah, we should too. have killed it that way. But I don't like the gamesmanship. 
So do you do you think and I'm, that, and I'm a Republican? Yeah, no, I get that. And, and and I think like I think most people in the country agree with you and not I mean, not most people in Mitch McConnell's office. I think most people in the country agree with you that the idea of appointing Merrick Garland when this was not a Robert Bork appointee, this isn't the person who was willing to stand with Richard Nixon, fire anybody trying to hold Richard Nixon accountable and participate in historic sin. Meanwhile, creating the worst antitrust doctrine in the country's history. One of the reasons why it's been more possible for us to have a tech oligarchy finally after we'd beaten back industrial oligarchies. The idea prior to Bork had pretty much been if the president picked somebody to go on the Supreme Court, he generally got his pick. Mm-hmm. And I personally think that the, Garrett, the, the Merrick Garland thing was literally tit for tat. It took us 35 years to do it. But the Democrats denied us one that we wanted, and finally we were able to deny them one that they wanted. And I personally think that's all the, the Garland thing was. I think the GOP as a group was waiting for their day to snatch yeah. one out of a Democrat's hands. I have a different, Corey, I have a different perspective, and I hear yours. I have a different perspective. And it's really interesting. And if you do like studies in the Middle East, and you ask you ask people, you ask people who've served in the Israeli military, and you ask Palestinians sort of the, the history of the conflict. They will tell the conflict, well, it started when, if you ask a Palestinian, that was start, well, it started when Israel did this to us. And so we had no choice but to do this. And so then, and, and after finally accounts were balanced, Israel said they went and had the temerity to harm us again. And so, of course, we had to respond. And after that, after finally things were even, Israel hit us again. And if you ask somebody who served in the Israeli military, and they say, well, how did all this get going? They say, well, the Palestinians bombed us. We, of course, had to respond. And then after accounts were balanced, the Palestinians again attacked us. So what could we do? We had no choice but to respond. And then they had the temerity after finally things were even to attack us yet again. So, of course, we could do nothing but respond. And I recognize that asking people of sort of different party loyalties to describe the historical tit for tat, people will order their tit for tat in opposite fashion. But I, with that caveat, I say I do, and I hope you at least be open to this possibility. I think that it started earlier, and I don't think it was uh, they did this to me. I do this for you, uh, or to you, or respond in the following way. And if you would be willing, if you'd be willing to read a book, it's the only book I've said this about. That if everybody read this book, I think the country would be different. And it's Democracy in Chains by, uh, by McLean, Nancy McLean. And I, I would almost implore you to read it. Because also before Bork, Supreme Court justices weren't appointed that way. And by that I mean, it wasn't primarily ideology. Wizard White, Byron White, was appointed Republican, you know, moderate conservative justice, was appointed by... President Kennedy, because he liked the guy, thought he'd be a good judge. He was a good lower court judge Uh, that Justice Stevens was appointed by Gerald Ford prior to Bork. You didn't have a Federalist Society prior to Bork. You did not have an apparatus that was saying we are going to use the Supreme Court as a super legislature. We are going to learn the lesson from the Lochner era when in response to the Great Depression, we're going to tear down any social legislation that passes because we can because we're the court. And they learned that lesson and the Koch brothers learned that lesson and they funded an apparatus to start transforming the court. And I don't know how useful it is in purpose of blame 
to say, well, who started it? But to understand what's going on, I don't think this was just a three-decade-later tit-for-tat. I think what's been going on is a court takeover, a court packing that's been happening for decades, that there was a, a brief blip when Bork wasn't confirmed. To me, the principle ought to be, yeah, you pretty much get your choice unless you pick something crazy. And I think Barack Obama, operating under that rule, picked a moderate judge when a lot of people are saying, listen, they're going to maybe tank this guy anyway. Why don't you pick somebody, some fire-haired lefty? And instead, he picked somebody he thought that a majority of senators would confirm. I agree with you. That I think the rule should be, well, as long as they're not way out there, the president should get who they want. But I think that the right-wing movement transformed itself, and, I've, and there's data to confirm it, transformed itself as prioritizing the courts. And not after Bork, but after Brown versus Board of Education. And they realized when, when Southerners in particular started realizing, when corporatists in particular started realizing that a Supreme Court could force black kids to go to white school. And when that happened, they had to start prioritizing the courts. That happened well before Bork. And the movement to do that happened well before Bork. Any chance you'd be willing to read the book? Yeah, no, definitely. I, I just finished The Rebellion of Ronald Reagan last night, so it's yeah. a good one to go to next. I have no problem. I read constantly. I'll tell you, on the, just the Board of Education thing, yeah, I don't think that really bothered Republicans as much as y'all think that it, it did. No, I, I don't. I don't no, another, and, and, but here, here's the thing. For another time. No, Corey, no, Corey, no, Cor, here's the thing. I don't think it did either. Like, I, I recognize that Abraham Lincoln was a Republican. I reckon, like, I don't think this was a Republican thing that got done. I recognize the Democratic Party was the racist party 100 years ago. Ain't no question. The movement that was built in the wake of Brown versus Board of Education saw the Republican Party as the party could infiltrate and take over. And that's what's happened. And the slowness of word getting out, how long it's taken for states like Pennsylvania, who were every single election a, a Republican state, but also a progressive state, to then finally become a purple state has been decades. This stuff takes a long time. But I don't think this was Republican and Democrat to begin with. I just fear that's what it is now. Just came back from book tour hauling, you know, basically a studio in a box onto airplanes and off airplanes and up into the overhead bins. And oh, geez, my back was hurting. I was so glad to have New Leaf Natural CBD oil. It's spectacular. Uh, CBD oil is non-intoxicating, which makes it ideal for people seeking the health benefits of cannabinoids without the mind-altering effects of medical marijuana. CBD is also non-toxic and has potent pain-relieving and anti-inflammatory properties. The brand Louise and I trust the most is New Leaf Naturals. NU Leaf Naturals. New Leaf Naturals is the highest quality CBD oil on the market. It's 100% organic, it's highly concentrated, contains no additional additives, and it's grown in the United States. Its only ingredient is hemp, so it remains in its most pure and simple form. Go to newleafnaturals.com, that's N-U-LeafNaturals.com, and save 30% off and get free shipping in the U.S. when you use the code TOM, spelled T-H-O-M. Go to newleafnaturals.com for premium cannabinoid wellness. There's only one place, newleafnaturals.com. Kenyatta from Redlands, how you doing? I'm fine, sir, here in Southern California, shaking and baking. Um, I, I wanted to ask you, I have a daughter that I have raised alone her entire life. She's now a college freshman, and she will be voting age for the next election. And she's been raised in a very intellectual environment, 
politically, I think, astute environment. One of the things that I asked her recently was, are you going to register to vote, so forth and so on? And she told me, and I was very surprised. She said, no, Dad. And I said, why? She says, because I don't, I don't get it. She says, I look at the people in the Democratic Party in particular, and I see Chuck Schumer, Elijah Cummings, John Lewis, Nancy Pelosi, Joe Biden. Those people are old enough to be your parents, Dad. Where do they relate to me? It was so profound. And I started to ask myself, where's the Democrat, not on, the Democratic Party, not only, these people are my parents' age. I'm in my mid-50s. When all of them grew up with Jim Crow laws, Jim Crow laws ended when I was born. And I'm really concerned with the Democratic Party with, in terms of its dealing with that. So I wanted you to weigh in on that. And I, I also will. wanted to ask you this as well. Because she went on to say, she says, and when I look at the electoral process in the country, what do I see? I see foreign interference, people meddling in elections, the voting machines don't work, the Supreme Court's gotten involved, there's, there's the, and we are black people, so there is the historical nullification of black votes, which continues to this day since the 15th Amendment, and she says, what's the point? Tell me how I respond to her, because I'm a professional wordsmith, and I had no words. All right. I may, I may need to take another crack at the second because i must acknowledge i was preparing my answer to the first which is one of the reasons i think why tom has his one topic rule it just dawned on me it's not only to keep it moving it's also so we can keep us thinking straight but i'll, I'll start with the first thing uh, what we do about a young and, and i will say this doesn't mean i'm an expert on the topic but how i got into this mess was engaging young people in democracy i was younger then uh, and in, in starting the bus project and it is now the alliance for youth action around the country uh, or spawned the the federation that became that which is now in 11 states around now is 11 headquarters around the country i may not say this from wisdom but i say it from passion and some experience this is something that was taught to me by my friend caitlin baggett who started the bus project with us and who now is the executive director of the North Star Civic Foundation, guess the following president. I won't do it as well as Caitlin, but I'll try to remember. Was elected after a time in the context of some unpopular or at least uh, damaging international conflict, had to deal with economic challenge, was elected by the biggest youth voter turnout in American history, who am I talking about? I would guess Kennedy, I would guess Obama, and she would say, no, it was FDR. FDR was elected by young people. He wasn't all that young. He wasn't all that spry. But he built a jobs program that impacted young voters and built an entire generation of Democratic voters around the country. This is the Tom Hartman Show. Right now, we are pleased to be joined by our friend John Nichols, national affairs correspondent with The Nation magazine, also author of a new book, Horseman of the Trumpocalypse, a field guide to the most dangerous people in America. If you want to go on nonviolent safari to understand uh, who is helping to run the apparatus, well, that's a good place to look. Uh, we're going to also ask about the debate. John Nichols, thank you so much for calling in. How is it going in your world? Well, my world is downtown Detroit today, and it is excellent. It's full of uh, energy and activism. Detroit's a great, cool town, good place to have a debate. And I suspect that tonight we'll have some fireworks. So on, on balance, a good day. 
So in Detroit, a lot of the attention from, you know, if people pay attention like 538 and some of the math nerds that pay attention to the Electoral College vote will look to, and you can imagine, there's some advocates could imagine a different map. If you change Texas, if you change North Carolina, you can imagine shifting this map. But a lot of folks, of course, on Michigan, Pennsylvania, and Wisconsin, maybe Ohio, you've made the case that candidates got to give people in Detroit a reason to care, a reason to be excited. Am I paraphrasing you accurately? 100% accurately. I believe in a 50-state map. In fact, I wish it was, uh, obviously it is 50 states, District of Columbia. I wish it was uh, Puerto Rico yeah. and Virgin Islands and a lot more places. I think everybody should be able to vote for president. And I think it should be considered competitive nationwide. But if you are going to look seriously at the map, what you're going to see is that in a handful of states, that gave Donald Trump the presidency, as painful as it is to say that, Wisconsin, Michigan, Pennsylvania. Fewer people than it would take to fill a football stadium decided the election, right? Trump, about 75,000 votes uh, between those three states. Michigan was the closest. Imagine this. Donald Trump carried Michigan by 11,000 votes. Yeah, it's fewer people that would fit in a basketball stadium. Yeah, now check this out. That is 0.23%. So one-fifth of a percent was his margin in Michigan. Yet that was absolutely critical to him becoming president of the United States. So this is a big deal, what we're talking about. And the fundamental reality is that in Wayne County, which is the Detroit area, and in Detroit, uh, you just had a significantly lower turnout in 2016 than you had in 2012 or 2008. If you had simply had a portion of the turnout, not even all of it that you'd had in 2012, Trump wouldn't have carried Michigan. He also wouldn't have carried Wisconsin or Pennsylvania. So this debate is really critical, not because of the people of Detroit per se, or the people of Milwaukee per se, or the people of Philadelphia or Pittsburgh, but in this deeper sense, can Democrats figure out how to talk to older cities, urban centers, which have experienced a lot of deindustrialization, right. that, which have experienced a lot of neglect from Washington, which have often majority-minority population? And, and that's, that's not just one slogan. That's a deeper discussion. Uh, and so, we'll see if they get there tonight. So, yeah, and let's take at least a, a minute or two, identify a few ways, right? And there is so much because maybe it's because most of us are blessed with two arms and two eyes and two legs. <laughs> we see the world in a binary thing. Say, oh, well, are they going to tack to the left or tack to the right? Are they going to go after the base or go after uh, or, or go after uh, swing voters? I, I tend to think the world is not always explained by binaries. In fact, I think it usually is misexplained by binaries. But there is that dynamic, at least, and there is that... There'll be that discussion of the dynamic, which almost makes it real. What do you see as a couple things that would get, that maybe would adopt the Jesse Jackson, you need both your right and your left wing to fly uh, principle? And what would be the kind of things that you think would not be violations of principle, but that would appeal not only to Detroit, but also, let's say, Macomb County? I remember the Politico article (laughs) that was talking about up the eight mile, for those of us who, you know, listen to listen to hip hop lyrics and know that know that Eminem, you know, is from Macomb County, which has been a bellwether predictive county of so many presidential elections. What are those issues that you think you're going to really be watching for? Sure, of course. Well, first off, let's be clear. 
if you simply mobilize the base in a better way, if you just do it better than you did in 2016 in Wisconsin, Michigan, Pennsylvania, you probably win the presidency. So it's okay to talk about the base. That's not an unreasonable thing to do. But in the moment that we are in, we really, I think, have to talk about how do you win big? How do you not just defeat Trump, but Trumpism? How do we make sure that this thing stops in 2020, that it doesn't, you know, linger on? Then you're looking for something that really does appeal in a broad way and in a smart way. And in a state like Michigan, industrial policy, focusing on really good jobs with good benefits and, you know, a future. And that won't necessarily be reopening auto plants, although that may happen in some cases. But it's really about a 21st century economy. This is a place where Democrats have to make the Green New Deal make sense. That's a two-part thing. We know the value of the Green New Deal, right? It addresses climate change and economic dislocation. But we have to make sure that it is something that people can wrap their heads around and really see as an option for them. So deeper, smarter discussion of the Green New Deal, or whatever you want to call it, that's a big thing. I went this morning up to Warren, Michigan. That's a town outside, a city outside of Detroit, it kind of blends into Detroit. There's a lot of communities around this city, and so you could be driving and one minute being one town, one in the next. But Warren's an older industrial area, and in two days, one of their major auto plants is going to close. Yeah. They're going to lose thousands of jobs. And so this is real stuff. And if you can talk about that and not do what Trump did, because Trump lied, he came and said, we're just going to Keep all the plants open and bring all the jobs back. Don't move. Don't sell your house. Everything's going to be great. And then, and then say lied. immigration and say trade policy. Yeah, right. the, the old Clinton yeah. move was the old Clinton move was saying like job retraining. Uh, what's the in a John Nichols world? Yeah. What's the what's the key element of industrial policy? We've got about a minute. Sure, it's easy. Um, you start with the communities where people live, and you say that community should survive, and people should be able to live there and have a decent life. And so that industrial policy has to be national, and it has to be focused on where industries are dialing down, where you can dial things up. That's how they do it in Germany. That's how they do it in Scandinavia. It's doable. Industrial policy is not hard. But in that case, you have to be looking forward and planning. And we don't have – that hasn't happened in America. And it's been very, very damaging. And so that's a huge part of this. Although I really want to – I do want to emphasize also in this debate – talking to these cities and these places, talking about racial justice, and that pivots off the industrial policy, although it's not unrelated. Talking about racial justice is also going to matter, especially after what this president has done. In the last 10 10 seconds, they're about to turn the music on us. Oh, they just did. (laughs) Would you go to task on Donald Trump on trade, or would you recognize that some degree of, of tariff is good for industrial America? Industrial policy is going to have some tariff, some investment. It's going to be a mix because you do it based on what works, not on just kind of a whim of a, of a billionaire who assumes the president. John Nichols, thank you so much from The Nation. This is Pleasure. the Tom Hartman Program. Leslie, you're on the air. Go ahead. Thank you. In 2008, I was listening to Glenn Beck on the radio. 
And he said that he was going to have to take off his TV shows and probably his radio because he was scared that Barack Obama was going to put the Fairness Doctrine back in. That's how how good the Fairness Doctrine is. They're gone. Fox will be gone and everything if it's put back in. That's a fact. We won't stop the brainwashing of this country. But no, corporate Democrats don't want it. It's a it's a good Obama question. And Clinton. Yeah, it, it's I actually want to do some more research before understanding all of the forces to and fro. I think you're right that the biggest corporate forces don't want to mess with regulations on what they do. And let me also say, like if that meant that next to me and I'll acknowledge my own, you know, where I come from politically, if that meant that I had to sit next to somebody who disagreed with me politically uh, for, you know, or that I had to be followed by somebody. And what that, but what that meant was we could have an honest discussion of what was really going on in this country, and we could have an honest discussion to make sure we had fact-based policymaking. We were replied to climate change based on facts. I would take that deal seven days a week, twice on Sunday. And you, and you think the primary thing is just connected essentially to the dominance of money on our political apparatus, which is why that even Barack Obama was unable or unwilling to, to change it. Yeah, because of money. Yeah, yeah. Well, I'll say— That's disgusting. Here's a thing. And the good news is in New York, y'all are taking a step. And I think that step is helpful in things like building the kind of political apparatus and the kind of political culture that can elect in a Democratic primary someone like Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and not just have Michael Bloomberg's, who for all his beneficence with his philanthropy, including being one of the not very many hopes in us doing something and financial hopes of having organizations have support who want to do something about the scourge of gun violence. Nonetheless, he had to spend, what was it, 40 bucks a vote? I mean, he was spent tens of millions of dollars on becoming mayor of New York, that New York has instituted uh, public financing, a six-to-one match in the city of New York. used to just be a one-to-one match, which didn't help people win very much, but a six-to-one match is meant that you don't have to have the support of oligarchs and you have a chance to win. The state of New York has been trying to pick that up also. That is something, by the way, that our fair and good and decent and righteous activist Tom Hartman listeners could do in your cities. You could pass public financing. It's a little harder to do in states, but it can be done in states. Still worth trying in states. Blue states will want to do it. There'll be budget challenges. They'll argue about the budget as a proxy for not wanting to open up democracy. In cities, it's not as expensive. There's not as many races. And you can get it done. Portland, Oregon just did it. Uh, there are other uh, cities who can do it also. If you're looking at those things, I'm going to add that. It's actually already on my list of ways to apply energy. You might not be able to pick the president. Tom Steyer decided the best way for him to pick the president, despite having tens of millions of dollars to put into the political process, he decided the best way to do that was for himself to run. Most of our listeners are not going to run for president. I think we have about as many candidates as the debate stage can fill. In fact, in the future, it's probably going to get a little smaller. But each of you can work to address money and politics in your own jurisdiction. Each of you can make sure that underrepresented voices are subsidized. Each of you can make sure that when there is a debate, it's more likely to happen based on the facts and less likely to be based just on the bribe. That is one thing that each of us can do in so many jurisdictions around this country. You know, as we get older, one of the first signs is under eye puffiness, right? Sometimes crow's feet and things like that, some wrinkles. How do you deal with this stuff? You know, there's been home remedies and all kinds of stuff, you know, hemorrhoid creams and tea bags over the years. 
but none of them work. What works is Plexiderm, and I'm not talking about days and weeks to work. Plexiderm is clinically studied serum that visibly eliminates under eye bags and wrinkles from view in minutes. Did you hear that? In minutes. The science behind Plexiderm is incredible with the clinical studies to back it up. If you look older and tired because of crow's feet, wrinkles, or under eye bags, you can look younger in just minutes with Plexiderm. See for yourself. Watch a real video with real people and see how fast crow's feet, wrinkles, and under eye bags disappear. Those results are backed up by Plexiderm's 30-day satisfaction guarantee. Go to TryPlexiderm.com and use the co coupon code TOM, T-H-O-M, to get my discount. That's TryPlexiderm.com with the code TOM, T-H-O-M, or call one 800 685-1292, 1-800-685-1292, and mention Tom. We had a caller who said something that I think is one of the hardest strategic things for progressives to address. We know, and we just know, that the conservative movement picks wedge issues. And the definition of a wedge issue is something that divides a little bit some segment of voters in a Democratic, big D Democratic coalition. For instance, if you have a strategy to win Rust Belt states, if you want to win Wisconsin, Pennsylvania, and Michigan, and hold on to Ohio when you're a Republican, then you recognize that a bunch of white voters there and so do something that, you know, might divide white voters, might appeal to some white voters and drive a wedge between people who identify themselves as white voters versus people who do not identify themselves as white voters, either because they try to identify themselves primarily through their color or because they are white. And this is not too different a move than when there was focus on bathrooms or when there was focus on same-sex marriage it's not too different a move than when there was focus on women's right to choose. Because you got to figure out a way to get poorer people to vote for a platform that helps concentration of wealth among the very few. And we know that's been a move that's going on for a long time. That fire didn't just get lit. And the challenge is, what do we do? Because in the social media age, as I opened the show with, the power of the bully pulpit is to pick the fight. The power of the bully pulpit is not only to say the thing and have a lot of people see that thing, but it's to trigger the responses because that's what triggers the algorithms. That's what garners attention in an attention economy. It's not enough just to preach from the pulpit. You've got to get Hosiahs and Hosannas. You've got to get people preaching back. And that includes for algorithms disagreeing and being grumpy back. And all that does is make sure more people see your thing and you then get to jump off of just the social media and you get Al Sharpton to be the lead story in the morning. So what do you do about it? What is the response? You can't just say, well, uh, having jingoistic, jingoistic, ethnocentric, racist border policies is OK. You can't just be quiet about that. But I think you can continue to focus on the biggest priorities you want to focus upon. For me, it's three big things. It is massive wealth disparities. It is the erosion of the planet. And it is democracy, which includes fundamental dignity and equality. It's save the middle class, save democracy, and save the planet. I can think of more than three things, but I can always remember three things. And for me, I think it's okay for us to prioritize. I think it is morally permissible, and I think it's also strategically important 
to not forget. You can you don't have to change your view. You don't have to disregard. You don't have to be silent upon. You don't have to fail to respond to cruelty in any of its forms. But you're also allowed to return to, to pivot to, to stay focused upon your primary objectives and make sure those primary objectives have a path to accomplishment, have a path to making people's lives better. Where I think folks can be spending energy, if if we believe it, when Tom says democracy is not a spectator sport, if when he says tag your it, that doesn't mean it's your time to, I don't know, say something to a neighbor. I hope it means that. But also for us to do things. What are the things to do? Other than sending $3 to the presidential candidate who sends you an email. What are the things to do? I want to offer that list. Zach, go ahead. Speak your piece. We reaffirm racism on a daily basis, hundreds and hundreds of times, by the language we use. Yeah. And uh, would you agree that a colloquialism is a term that is so embedded in our daily language as to be almost impossible to remove or replace, something that's been used for years? I have a suggestion that we change the colloquial name of the executive mansion to the public house. The pub, for short, reducing the normal call-out syllables by one. What do you think of that? I'll take it. Call it the pub. I was thinking of it just the other day, right? I mean, we've got white papers, white house. and if we, we don't, reaffirm it hundreds of times every a day. Time. The white house. Think of it. Right. And, and I think, and the people who really investigate language and, and connect language to oppression see how much there is, right? I mean, even like, you know, dark territory, dark topics, the darkness of our souls. I use that language too, and I won't fully remove it from my lexicon. But no. where we can, where we can together identify places that could be easily renamed. I like the public house. I like the public. If we, if we added, if we added a bar that didn't uh, made sure people didn't get drunk and drive there. But if we added some kind of gathering place where people could participate, that wasn't just a gift shop, uh, yeah. then I think it actually might take hold. Is that you could gather to the pub, and the pub in the United States meant democracy. I love. I- I'm picking up what you're putting down, man. Yeah. All right, man. Thank you. Appreciate it, Zach. Paul, waiting patiently. Go ahead, Paul. Yeah, uh, Jefferson. Uh, I wanted to talk about evangelical Christianity, and there was. Talking earlier about uh, the beginnings of Rush Limbaugh, but it started way before that. It was well, sure. more than fifteen, more than fifteen years. Well, actually, evangelical Christianity started you know 150 years ago in this country. But in modern modern times, in modern media, this started in about the early 70s. The the Koch brothers started funding these uh, TV evangelists that we've all been familiar with. And this was leading up to, as Thomas has talked about, the the uh, Koch brothers and their uh, their uh, libertarian platform in the 1980 election. They started ten years before that, and what happened is the they bought up pretty much all of the television airtime with these evangelical preachers yep. and drove all of the denominational Christian shows off the air because the, the denominational churches could not anywhere near keep up with the amount of money the Koch brothers were throwing at the television time. And at that time, denominational Christianity in this country was generally liberal. And all you need to do to convince yourself of that 
is watch 1960s television. I'm talking about shows like Bonanza, where all of these issues, racism, bigotry, big business taking over, there's a Bonanza episode to address almost all of these things. Remember that these TV shows are reflecting what America believes, not telling them what to believe. And so in the 1960s, remember, the House of Representatives, the Democrats owned the Congress. And even through Nixon's presidency, but when the Koch brothers came along, threw money at right-wing television, what they're trying to do is use Christianity, distorted, corrupted Christianity, to convince people that the right-wing way to go was the moral and Christian thing to do. Yep. And I, they have did nothing but corrupt it completely. And you notice now, there's still no denominational Christian television. It's all either TV evangelist features. Every Elmer Gantry in the world is on TV. Joel Olsen all these people. There's no Christian message. It's all of this condemnation. And um, no, I hear you. And we've, and we've talked about it on like, the program. And let me say that it's often said that Blight Company does not talk about politics or religion. We on this show always talk about politics. We will now violate the second precept and talk about religion. That if you want to go back a little bit further, there are multiple trigger points. One of those trigger points was, in fact, Brown versus Board of Education. And even also the, after the Powell memo and the rise of Koch Brothers funding, I mean, the history of the right wing is so important to understand. And something that I think when people say mainstream media, it's one of the big stories that is still underappreciated, is still undercovered, because it's so easy to talk about sort of both sides. And, well, there's two political parties, same as there have been for a while, and you fail to connect enough of the dots. But if you go back, I, I think I will talk about religion after the break and violate that second precept. But very quickly, after Brown version Board of Education was taking Southern Christians as justifications who had to figure out how to justify slavery, and then taking that idea of religion, taking it away from the progressives nationwide. You're listening to Tom Hartman. Visit TomHartman.com for audio and video archives. Howdy, everybody. I'm Jefferson Smith. This is the Tom Hartman Program. Counting down the lines of the night of the folks who were named debate winners by the most publications. Next, we're going to do is Marianne Williamson. And I will say that she's never been a governor. She's never been a senator. But I hope there's some stuff that she said that we will remember. And I hope that her approach of willing not only to exist on a spectrum of political power, but to look at it a little bit from a remove is an ethic that more of us and more of our political discussion can uh, uh, learn from. Let's play the clip. In 1776, our founders brought forth on this planet an extraordinary new possibility. It was the idea that people, no matter who they were, would simply have the possibility of thriving. We have not ever totally actualized this ideal, but at the times when we have done best, we have tried. And when forces have opposed them, generations of Americans have risen up and pushed back against those forces. We did that with abolition and with women's suffrage and with civil rights. And now it is time for a generation of Americans to rise up again. For an amoral economic system has turned short-term profits for huge multinational corporations into a false god. And this new false god takes precedence over the safety and the health and the well-being of we, the American people, and the people of the world, and the planet on which we live. Conventional politics will not solve this problem. 
because conventional politics is part of the problem. We, the American people, must rise up and do what we do best and create a new possibility. Say no to what we don't want and yes to what we know can be true. I'm Marianne Williamson, and that's why I'm running for president. Also want to give a chance to the Bernie Sanders moment. This one has been more replayed, but in case you missed it, in case you're one of the folks who didn't have time to watch the debate or didn't have access to paid cable, but you do have access to the radio or the various ways that this show is shared, let's catch this. Recognize that much of the debate that CNN set up was you had the four, probably the four most conservative Democrats who are running, Tim Ryan, Delaney, Hickenlooper, and Bullock. And they came after often by name, Bernie Sanders, Elizabeth Warren, on health care. And there was a chance for at least Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren to offer some reply. Let's play Bernie Sanders' chance to reply. Second of all, you don't know that, second Bernie. of all, we'll come I, to you in a second, I do know when I wrote the damn bill. And second of all, second of all, many of our union brothers and sisters, nobody more pro-union than me up here, are now paying high deductibles and co-payments. And when we do Medicare for all, instead of having the company putting money into health care, they can get decent wage increases, which they're not getting today. Elizabeth Warren described as Republican talking points, and I think either already have been or soon will be Republican talking points about taking away people's health care. Oh, you're going to take away people's health care by providing universal health care. Think about that for a moment. And then her having to respond to change the dynamic. And I will say that if folks want transformation, we do need to lobby. Let's learn from Ari Berman, who said, let's make it sure at least there are some questions asked about democracy. Some question asked about making sure people aren't deterred from being able to go to the ballot. But also, do we need fundamental change? Let's play the Elizabeth Warren clip. Understand why anybody does to all the trouble of running for president of the United States just to talk about what we really can't do and shouldn't fight for. Our biggest problem in Washington is corruption. It is giant corporations that have taken our government and that are holding it by the throat. And we need to have the courage to fight back against that. And until we're ready to do that, it's just more of the same. Well, I'm ready to get in this fight. I'm ready to win this Thank fight. Thank you, Senator Conner. I appreciate so much being here. I want to say thanks so much to all of our listeners. It is such an honor to do this. You are the coalition of the benevolently irrational, the good people doing good things for no good reason. Without you, democracy doesn't have that much of a chance. With you, we got a chance. You are priceless. Definition of priceless, worth a lot, not for sale. Thanks, everybody. For audio and video archives, visit TomHartman.com. 